Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Insurgent to Icon. I'm your host, Patrick, and this is my first ever podcast episode. So thank you for watching and let's see how this goes. It's going to be a great time, I hope. Um, fingers crossed. Uh, however, this episode is mainly going to deal with context in terms of Irish history and not so much as Collins. We are going to touch a little bit about his youth, but we're going to mostly stay in the 16th century. We're going to moving on to the 18th century and 19th and a little bit of the 20th. But not so much, because that comes later in the next episode when we're going to start discussing the greater, more important topics such as the Easter Rising, which will play a monumental role in the development of Colin's character, as well as his opponents, such as Eamon de Valera. And all these names will be familiar soon to you, hopefully. Um, so please, I hope you enjoy this. Uh, sit back, relax, get some water that's really good for you, and yeah, let's, let's have some fun. Bye-bye. Michael Collins is widely regarded within the annals of Irish history as the father of modern Ireland, as his feats against the British administration in Ireland were instrumental in the creation of an independent Irish Republic. Firstly, taking part in the historic Easter Rising of 1916 and following the Rising, his gilded career as an insurgent commander continued through the subsequent Irish Revolutionary War, as he was responsible for the creation of one of the most effective campaigns of counterintelligence in modern history, which would be his infamous Twelve Apostles. His Twelve Apostles, or as they were more commonly referred to as the Squad, were responsible for carrying out numerous IRA strikes against British officials and assets throughout the nation. And what I mean by most effective uh, counterintelligence operation in modern history is, quite literally, Collins' Squad was responsible for the complete annihilation of the British Secret Service in Ireland at this time. Like, this is, these are untrained men who were handpicked by Collins who took on, I, I guess, the, the early equivalent of MI6, or MI5 at the time, and annihilated them. They beat them, just flat out. We're going to cover that much later in other episodes when we start talking about the Irish Revolutionary War. Um, but that's just uh, a little flavor for who this man is and what he ended up doing for Ireland. However, Colin's monumental stature has been marred by a theme of melancholy. The Ireland's leader had been lost in the midst of his prime as he was assassinated in his home county Cork on the 22nd of August, 1922. Interestingly, his assassins were his former allies. In this podcast series, then, I hope to address Colin's radical transformation in character from a revolutionary commander opposed to British rule in Ireland to becoming a statesman ruling in Ireland on behalf of the British. And in by doing so, you will learn exactly why Collins would be killed by the very same men he fought beside since the first taste of combat in 1916 men who shared his ideals and aspirations of a free Irish Republic. Yet it was purely the means by which Ireland would be set free, which would set these former allies against one another, and lead to a brutal civil war throughout Ireland lasting from the 20th of June, 1922, to the 24th of May, 1923, a war which would leave an estimated 1,700 people dead. This war would pit Irish nationalists against Irish nationalists, as the IRA schismed underneath two opposing Irish characters, Michael Collins and Eamon de Valera. these men at odds. I believe that it can be pinpointed in both of these individuals' experiences in Ireland's greatest bid to seize freedom, the Easter Rising of 1916. An experience for Collins which forced him to adopt an independent interpretation of Irish republicanism 
and a new understanding of Irish freedom in totality. However, in order to understand Michael Collins and his, these ideas, we must first look at the world he had been brought up in. Ireland had been underneath English rule since the 16th century, formally recognized as a core of England underneath the Act of Union in 1801, binding Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and England together to form Great Britain. However, the British administration within Ireland would conduct itself in a manner similar to Britain's overseas territories, such as India. As Ireland was understood to be colonial holding, it was subjected to numerous attempts on behalf of the British administration to assimilate and convert the native Gaelic and Catholic population into an extension of the English Protestants of the mainland, most notably through the English plantation movements, which saw the English crown of indigenous Gaelic tenants of the land to be replaced by large infusions of English colonists, the most successful plantation being that of Ulster in Northern Ireland. Due to these efforts, the Irish experience has evolved to incorporate two unique populations, separated more so by religion rather than nationality, the Irish Catholics of the South and the Irish slash English Protestants of the North centered on Ulster. The plantation movements of the 16th century, however, prompted Gaelic Ireland to organize underneath the most powerful dynasty in Ireland, the Fitzgeralds, to lead an army of resistance to an increasingly militaristic English colonial endeavor. Yet these Irish lords would fail in their endeavors, as their titles would be subsequently placed in the hands of English aristocracy and their lands hereby subjected to English and Anglican law. However, I just want to reiterate, though, when I mean English colonists, I'm not trying to be exclusive here and say it was just the English. There were Scots who came over and Welshmen who came over. And also, I want to clarify the term plantations. Uh, I'm not meaning like your traditional idea of like a cotton plantation or a tobacco plantation. When we're referring to an Irish or English plantation, we mean they are planting people there in the land. They are trying to create an English community or a Scottish community as opposed to a Gaelic or Irish community, they are planning people. This is a, an endeavor of blood more so than actual resources and economic uh, growth, if that makes sense. And similarly, uh, when I was talking about overseas territories such as India, I definitely cut the board short there a little bit because I should have also included Australia, New Zealand, and Canada to that list because frankly, these strategies of exclusion and land theft uh, and murder, and, and, yeah, murder, uh, were similarly carried out in Canada and still to this day uh, against Indigenous communities. And these tactics were used in Canada specifically with residential schools, which were made strictly to assimilate Indigenous populations into the settler colonial society uh, through the erasure and destruction of their law, language, and religion. So what's important about all of this when I'm talking about it is essentially these ideas, uh, which we see to this day being carried out in, in settler societies, um, aren't new. They, they are time immemorial, they are imperialistic, and in this case, they begin in Ireland. This is England's proving ground for imperialism. There would be numerous attempts throughout the subsequent history of Ireland on behalf of Irish revolutionaries to set Ireland free yet all would fail, one of the most famous being the Irish Rebellion of 1798, which was primarily inspired by and modeled after the French and American revolutions. I would love to explore these events further, such as the 1798 Rising and uh, the Cromwellian invasion of, of, of Ireland following the Civil War. Uh, however, that would take so much work. I have, I'm not well versed in those fields, and that would be an entirely different episode in its own. Um, 
However, for this particular episode, I think what we should be doing is sticking to the 19th and 20th centuries flavor of Anglo-Irish history as a means to help you understand the events which are primarily in the minds of Irish people prior to the outbreak of the Great War, uh, events which would have inspired or helped Collins grow as a young adult in Ireland. Arguably, the most prominent event would have came from a combination of prop dependency and pro-English trading policies underneath the Whig government of Westminster. This combination in tandem with an accidental import of an American-based bacteria which destroyed potato crop yields across Ireland would lead to the Great Irish Potato Famine of 1845. The catastrophic famine had only been strengthened by a strong wind of anti-Irish sentiments on behalf of English landlords, whose ruthless conduct in tandem with the crisis devastated the Irish population, killing more than one million Irish and forcing many more to flee abroad. And the reason why it was so devastating is essentially Ireland lived off potatoes. They were an easy to grow crop, they had, were high in, in, in uh, calories, which was required for a growing industrialized society. Uh, it, were, it would be like, it would be your, your sole, I guess, source of, of, of energy through the, the day. And it was simple. It was easy to cook, you know, bake them, mash them, bake them, mash them, stick them in a stew. They're, they're amazing. Uh, however, uh, the Irish populace depended on it far too much. And due to that, when you have that single resource economy or single resource food system, when that goes down and you have a, 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 a large population due to industrialization and the subsequent uh, uh, exploitation of these crops from the Americas, uh, when that goes away, you have this starving population that can no longer rely on the energy source that they were currently using or have historically used. And that was the potato famine. As a result of these British colonial policies and history, Irish history can easily be summarized into a narrative of resistance and revolution, all of which ended in failure. Yet the Fenian Revolt of 1867 forced Parliament to reevaluate troubles in Ireland, as Irish revolutionaries organized underneath the IRB, which was the Irish Republican Brotherhood, a radical Irish nationalist movement whose aims were to establish an independent Irish Republic by any means necessary, which included offensive actions across the empire. And what I mean by Fenian, uh, what that is, it's essentially a, an umbrella topic when you're discussing individuals who are associated with the IRB, uh, Irish Republican Brotherhood. Think of them as like a precursor to the IRA. Um, Fenians are just like a fraternal organization of just Irish revolutionaries, if that's a really... Uh, broad simplification I can just give you. It, it, don't, don't think too hard about it. So the IRB organized risings throughout Ireland and government offices in London were bombed and actually an outright invasion of Canada by the American chapter of the IRB, whose veterans, uh, veteran Fenian regiments from the Civil War were composed of both Northern and Southern veterans, compromised the fragile Canadian and American border, which brought the empire into crisis. Due to these actions, British Prime Minister William Gladstone and his new government were forced to put the Act of Union under revision. Firstly, through adjusting the unequal and discriminatory system of land ownership, Gladstone's policies were, as Richard Colleen stated, intended to equalize the relationship between landlord and tenant by positive discrimination in favor for the latter, a departing tenant's right to be compensated for improvements made by him and the right to sell his interest to the highest bidder subject to the landlord's approval of the purchaser. These policies were already customary in Ulster in Northern Ireland, which was predominantly English and Protestant as we've stated, yet Gladstone's Act of 1870 sought to grant these privileges throughout the rest of Ireland. To the Catholic South. And I guess what you could take away from this section right here is uh, prior to the Gladstone Act of 1870, you can kind of understand what the situation was in Catholic Ireland and the South. Uh, there's no division at this point right now. Ireland does not physically exist as a country, but they are ruled very, very differently. In the South, as, you, as we just stated there, 
you can tell how the unequal system of land ownership could have contributed to the famine and how it could have created a hostile environment to land tenants who were already uh, uh, grievously poor and were subsequently subjected to a famine. They would have not that many options. There was no safety net. There is nothing for them. Is either leave Ireland or die in a lot of scenarios. And actually a lot of Irishmen uh, ended up going to England. My family which did that and then to America. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about the the Irish diaspora. Uh, I'd like to, but we got to stay on topic. Yet more importantly, Gladstone had to contend with the rising tide of Republican sentiment throughout Catholic Ireland, which called for complete separation from the British Empire in totality. To counteract the separatist sentiment, Gladstone instead chose to endorse a far less radical notion with, within Parliament, which was home rule. Home rule for Ireland would entail the departure from Ireland within the Act of Union as a de facto core of England, and would instead see Ireland rise to the same level of economic and political autonomy of Britain's overseas dominions such as Canada or Australia. To be more precise, Ireland would be granted its own parliament and would be able to regulate control over its own domestic policy, internal politics, and limited control within, uh, economic control with the exception of foreign affairs controlled by London. Home rule enjoyed support throughout Ireland early on. Most notably, this idea was largely popular amongst the Catholic clergy in Ireland, who saw the implementation of an Irish parliament as essential in regards to securing the political autonomy of Roman Catholics throughout Ireland, who had traditionally been dominated politically by Protestants. Similarly, uh, there was a gradual infiltration of former Fenian officers and supporters into the ranks of home rule reformists. Um, and due to this, home rule essentially became intertwined with the revolutionary pursuit of an independent Irish republic. Um, home rule then would merely be a means by which to achieve full independence, uh, to simplify it, reform rather than revolution. And uh, due to this, the inclusion of Fenian thinkers and the Roman Catholic clergy, the dream of home rule would have been a nightmare to Irish Protestants. Many Irish Protestants believed that an Irish parliament would result in the oppression of Protestants as they believed they would be misrepresented within an Irish parliament, mainly because Irish Catholics would not only comp compose the majority of seats within an Irish parliament, but would also form the majority of the voting bloc. Protestants then would be made a minority politically and subjected to the whims of a Catholic-dominated country in their mind. And also, I just noticed that we say Irish a lot in Ireland, Protestant, England, Catholic. I know it; it's kind of painful, because believe me, I'm, I'm in pain when I'm saying these things over and over and over, and I apologize, but this is just how I write, so I, I'm sorry. Anyways, though, home rule would find itself a frequent topic throughout Westminster, but more importantly in the Collins household. Hayden Talbot, an American journalist who interviewed Collins, notes the nationalistic environment which Michael Collins had been brought up into when he writes, these are Collins' words, by the way, as I grew up to young manhood, the Parnell speech was the one great topic of discussion. Every person in Ireland was thinking in terms of home rule, home rule at the early morning breakfast table, Home rule all day, home rule by the hearthside in the evening. It was this sort of thing that made one part of the atmosphere of nationalism. In this segment, Collins is referring to Charles Stuart Parnell, the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, one of the strongest Irish proponents of home rule in this specific instance. Furthermore, it can be ascertained that Michael Collins was the product of localism. Essentially, Michael Collins' nationalistic fervor had been fermented within the small regional environment of County Cork. So before we continue talking about County Cork and Collins' home, uh, I want to kind of explore the figure of Charles, uh, Charles Stuart Purnell that was just brought up. 
Um, Parnell is the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party at this time. He is the strongest proponent of home rule in this specific instance. Um, I also want to just add on, Charles Parnell is a Protestant. Um, I want to explore what is unique about Irish nationalism as the early part of my capstone delved into it. Historians largely agree that Irish nationalism is unique when compared to its European counterparts. What this means is that traditionally, European nationalistic movements are defined by their cultural primacy rather than political. For, our, for Ireland, it's purely political. The culture comes second. And why this is important, we look at Charles Stuart Parnell, um, we have to kind of acknowledge that religion does not play a prominent role for an Irish nationalist or a Republican in that sense. It may for some, but for the majority of, of these figures, such as Collins himself, religion is not a matter which divides Ireland that they see as. They see uh, Protestants and Catholics can work together to free Ireland from British rule in totality. Um, there is no need to amend the religious problems in Ireland in that scenario, because simply it comes second before the politic. Um, there are measures to revive Ga uh, the Gaelic language and Gaelic culture, you know, throughout this, this period, but it's always the politics that comes first. So historians such as Eugenio, Eugenio Biagini, he's Italian, I think, in his shaping of modern Ireland, reinforced the claim when discussing the origins of one of the strongest political proponents of Irish freedom, Sean Fine. It's a name you're going to be very familiar with in the future. Um, if you talk to, your, to people who, who have a, a little bit of understanding of, of Irish history, or say like your parents even, um, who would probably be alive during the Troubles, or if you were alive during the Troubles, Sean Fine was more commonly referred to as the political wing of the IRA. And I'm probably saying it wrong, but I like saying it that way, Sean Fine. It's probably Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin's probably the way to say it. Ignore the first ones. Um, Bijini notes that about its founder, Arthur Griffith, he, he writes, in defending Irish nationality, he had no time for sentimentality. He paid no attention to race or religion, and in particular, he refused to identify Irishness with Catholicism. He took a utilitarian, functional, rather than mystical view of what constituted the nation. Okay, so uh, now we can start talking about Collins and his youth. Uh, Michael Collins was born on October 16th, 1890, into a family of eight being the youngest of five sisters and two brothers. Following Irish tradition, he had been named after his 75-year-old father, Michael Collins. Um, similarly, like just to go back to Parnell just for one, one more second, uh, Parnell died a year following Collins' birth, and, and he served in, in Parliament uh, for the Irish Home Rule League from 1880 to 1882. So it kind of goes to show how, how much of an impact Parnell's speeches and works in Parliament had on the Irish populace to the far-reaching uh, corners of Ireland, which is County Cork, where, where Collins hails from. It would be these two factors, County Cork and Collins' family tradition, which would prove instrumental in dictating the direction of, his, of Michael Collins' future. Specifically, his hometown of Woodfield was a bastion of nationalistic fervor which is only exacerbated by a strong Gaelic cultural revival movement. And this movement, as we'll go on to discuss, was funded by the Fenians and the IRB. However, in regards to the homesteading, Michael Collins' father was the epitome of nationalistic rhetoric of the household. He represented the greatest influence in the formation of Collins' loyalties. Marjorie Forrester writes, at such times, the kitchen of Woodfield became the scene of patriotic discussion. The elder Michael Collins would speak of O'Connell and Thomas Davis and make the children repeat the poetry of nationalism the bad times of the past, never far from the Irish consciousness. So I did prepare a segment to talk about Daniel, Daniel O'Connell and Thomas Davis, but I feel like I've already spoken a lot about other figures. And if you'd want, if you'd like that, I could do that another time. Um, 
But in this scenario, what I think is very important to stress is that these figures, like for example, Thomas Davis, who was an Irish writer who wrote between, um, well, he was born in 1814, died in 1845. Uh, he wrote mostly Irish poetry that pertained to the, the Irish rebellion of 1798. And what this means is a lot of these issues or, or um, examples that we saw have spoken about, such as the potato famine, are very relevant in the Irish consciousness. They're very much alive. Like, you have to remember that Colin's father, he's, he's quite old, as we said, 75. Um, the issues such as the famine and, you know, the, the, the things they would see, like emaciated corpses uh, on the streets, on the roads, on the pathways, uh, the face of famine, they saw that firsthand and they they made sure they told their their uh their children about it the it's 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 an older issue but it's almost as if it's yesterday so these issues and anger that's carried over from the trauma of a, a nationwide famine they carry on and they they kind of fester and they grow and it becomes the hotbed or just say the bed in which uh the new generational nationalism will grow the, the generation which would be Collins and and so on, etc. Um, now that we've kind of covered the the home environment which Collins was raised in, uh, we can even go on to his education, and it was quite honestly not that very different, as his headmaster Dennis Lyons was an active member of the IRB and constantly uh, sought to instill the values of Irish patriotism, nationalism, and lessons of Irish history, uh, which greatly would have fed into an anti-Anglo sentiment, more than likely. In, in this case, you could definitely say he was trying to breed, or not breed, cultivate the next generation of, of Irish recruits for the IRB. Um, and, and to go off this and talk about their, his environment, uh, we can look at County Cork, um, or as I'm going to refer to it, West Cork right now. It, it appeared to impose a specific nationalistic mindset onto its inhabitants, this is primarily due to the geographic isolation of the area, which would have undoubtedly assisted in the fermentation of nationalism as a product of localism. And, and what localism is, is essentially like we see it in, in rural communities all the time. Um, I feel like I'm generalizing here, but localism is essentially you have a small community creating an echo chamber uh, as opposed to outside. I mean, opposed to outside information. So for, for West Cork and these areas, which are hard to reach, uh, which I'm going to go on to, it, it's very easy for these ideas to just continue to ferment and build strength with each generation. So the geography of the area is noted as enclosed by mountainous ranges in the Atlantic Ocean. It takes in the valleys of the River Lee and Brandon, Bandon, sorry, and much of the land is mountainous and boggy. Furthermore, the region had traditionally been a hotbed of anti-Anglo resistance, being one of the final regions to be subdued by English invaders during the Tudor conquest of Ireland in, six, Ireland in 1615. For example, the town which the Collins family resided in particular proved itself to be an epicenter of nationalist romanticism. As his hometown of Clonakilty, I know I said Woodfield, but Woodfield, uh, that's just my mistake. Woodfield is where he was born. He resided in Clonakilty. They're very close to each other, and I, I, I haven't been to the area personally, so I'm just going to use them interchangeably. But we're going to stick with Clonakilty right now. Um, it was centered on two statues, the Pikeman and the Maid of Erin. The Pikeman statue in particular serves as a monument to the 1798 rebellion as pikes had been used as the primary weapon for the majority of the rebels. The pike, therefore, became a symbol of resistance for the Irish people. While the Maid of Erin statue, which was commissioned in 1898, again, was dedicated to the same rebellion, serving as a reminder of, the, of Irish resistance as its Fenian patrons noted at its unveiling in 1901 that it is to serve as a symbol of hope to the people of the area. 
Now we're kind of going to go look at what I mean by nationalist rhetoric. Um, the prevailing nationalist rhetoric at the time was actually quite different from the traditional aspects uh, of what we were talking about. When we're talking about resistance and defeating the English, um, that traditionally has not gone very well for the Irish. It's only with the turn of the century and the growing pains of, of uh, I guess, England losing its power that you see a new idea of Irish nationalism emerge. So this new nationalism that I'm going to be talking about here uh, was primarily based on the belief that the British Empire was weakening and could in fact be defeated, defeated in open battle. And traditionally, as we said, that's not possible. That, that hasn't happened. It, it's gone really bad. Um, but why is this? Why, why are people starting to think that Britain is no longer the, the Goliath that it used to be? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the older generations that believe this. This is the new, new batch of people, new, new young kids who are growing up in, in the turn of the century and they're reading the headlines and they're seeing the world change before their eyes. They're seeing Britain, uh, weak. And, uh, it may be plausible to state that such a new resurgent nationalism was largely influenced by the infamous second Boer war and the first Boer war for that example. Um, which had coincided with the rise of this new nationalism in the late 19th century from 1899 to 1902. So this conflict saw Britain's larger and professional armies routinely defeated by smaller, well-organized Boer insurgent units. Um, and if, you do, if you're not familiar on this, in this conflict, this is in South Africa. There's two populations there that we have, well, actually more than two, but I'm going to really simplify it now. There's the Anglo uh, population, which means English, British in the South, and the Boer population, the Boer they're, they're Dutch. They're Dutch colonists, and they've been constantly moved around by the British, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to go too much into it, um, but they're at conflict, these two, two ethnic communities, and the British have to step in and stop the Boers from establishing a free Boer Republic in South Africa. Um, so, interestingly, the Boers received assistance from the IRB, who saw the success of the Boers in South Africa as essential and inspiring to the cause at home opting to send financial backing to the Boers, and even going so far as to create two Irish commando units, the Irish Transvaal Brigade and the 2nd Irish Brigade, which consisted of international volunteers from not only the Emerald Isle, and that is Ireland. And what's important with this is the Boer War helped enable Irish nationalism to essentially reform its inherent anti-Anglo sentiment uh, into a weapon of hope, uh, that the success of the Boers may actually be mimicked at home in the event of an Anglo-Irish confrontation so by creating a new age nationalism centered around uh, the Boer War, um, it would essentially set the tone for Irish Republicans for the early 20th century, most notably for figures like Eamon de Valera and Michael Collins. And what I mean by that is it will create uh, almost like a narrative of, uh, um, what can I say, like a stiff upper lip, like we're not going to give in to the British. We have to stand, we have to fight. And I know that sounds very generalized, but you're going to see it a lot later in, in the Easter Rising. This, this nationalism changes everything. And just to wrap up the entire chapter about the Boer War and all that, um, long story short, um, the Boers lose. The British win by creating concentration camps where they start putting uh, Boer families into these large controlled areas. I'm not too well versed on the subject. I really implore you to look more into it because the Boer War is very fascinating and it's some it's something else. It's also one of the first foreign deployments of Canadian soldiers ever. Um, but yes, what I'm trying to say with this is the Boer War kind of changes everything. Uh, not only for the Irish people, but for Europe in general, as it does not look good for the British. The damage has been done. They may have won, but everyone sees how truly weak Britain has become. 
And clearly because of this, power dynamics begin to change, and we have the creation of an inevitable conflict, which will come to be the Great War. And in that Great War, we'll see uh, Ireland try its hardest to free itself, and which will become the Easter Rising of 1916. And with this Easter Rising, we will see both Eamon de Valera and Michael Collins um, essentially set the path for both of their futures and inadvertently for Ireland as this revolution or rising will change everything for Irish history. And uh, another thing I want to add about the end of the Boer War and the rising of the new nationalism is that you can even go on as, as far as to say that technology has influenced this new nationalism. Uh, I just had this idea just now. I haven't seen it anywhere in any books or anything, but at this time you're seeing the, the rise of smokeless powder being used into bolt-action rifles, and uh, we have the invention of a lot of semi-automatic pistols, hand grenades are being redefined, recreated. All this new technology is making warfare a lot easier for, for um, untrained soldiers to fight. Um, it's a lot better than fighting in you know formation with muskets or, or uh, what's the word, um, single-shot rifles. With, with uh, bolt-action rifles and semi-automatic pistols, you have a lot of versatility in a combat zone. And uh, due to this versatility from technology, you can probably see how these new tools of warfare would have been not only appealing to uh, new generations of freedom fighters, but necessary as the next step that will un undoubtedly help them in freeing their home countries. For Ireland in particular, and what happened in the Boer War, these new weapons, which, um, I mean, shock not shockingly, a lot of them came from Germany, uh, German arms deals, would have been uh, food for thought, if that makes sense. What happens later is is uh, a lot of Irish nationalists uh, or the IRB secure arms deals from the German Empire to fund their revolution. Um, I'm going off topic here a little bit because, I mean, I'm, get, I'm definitely going to talk about that later. Um, but what I'm just trying to reiterate right now, su successfully, hope, hopefully, is uh, technology and the new advances in warfare have made uh, fighting an oppressive uh, force such as the British more easier. And I think uh, freedom fighters at this time would have acknowledged that tremendously. And just to wrap this up, that acknowledgement, um, I believe, played a part in the creation of this new nationalism uh, in tandem with the, the, um, the case study of the Boer War. Um, not only were the people looking at what was actually happening, how the British were losing over and over and over to a smaller force or untrained force, but also they would be looking at the, what weapons they'd be using. Uh, to help facilitate this, these defeats. And um, I'm gonna wrap up here, but what I just wanna kind of leave you off with is what we're gonna go into next. Um, in the next podcast, I'd like to talk about kind of the lead up to 1916 and how Collins found himself in the IRB and found himself fighting on the streets of Dublin as shells rained down and literally the city was set on fire and troops are running up and down the cobbled streets and blood was pouring down and it was this horrifying apocalyptic sight um, but yes, um, the Easter Rising will be a very, very important topic we're going to talk about, um, as it essentially dictates the future of Ireland. Um, in, in, in as much so, it creates uh, two opposing views of both Eamon de Valera and Michael Collins as these two figures, which will become very important later. We haven't talked about de Valera at all, but 1916 changes things. It puts Collins into a new perspective of, of what it means to be Irish and also what it doesn't mean to be free. 
and essentially the roots of the Civil War are planted there. Um, there's no way you can see the Civil War coming at this point, but um, very much so 1916 makes it possible. Well, um, that concludes my first ever episode of Insurgent Icon and my first ever podcast episode in general. Um, I want to say thank you so much for sticking around and I hope you had a good time. Um, I, I know I did. Like, this is actually a lot of fun to do, surprisingly. Um, had a fun time making it. Uh, I'm saying uh, a lot. Thank you. Seriously, there's, there's nothing more that I can say than thank you. This, this means a lot that you made it this far, if you did. Um, I look forward to making more episodes and hopefully I can get them out in a relatively quick amount of time. I hope so. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, uh, you can reach me at gedcopodcast at gmail.com and that's G-E-D-C-O podcast at gmail.com and uh, I don't think that's cap sensitive because there's no caps from what I see so we're good. But yeah, I hope you have an amazing day and I hope you really enjoyed this. Uh, like I said, I did. And thank you. Uh, have a pleasant day now. Goodbye.